This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Welcome to Knowledge at Wharton. I'm Angie Bassioni. My guest today is Professor Richard Schell, who is chair of the Legal Studies and Business Ethics Department here at Wharton. He's just come out with his fifth book. It's titled The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. And like the name implies, it's all about navigating the difficult ethical and moral dilemmas that can arise in the workplace and standing up for what's right. In short, it's about learning to become what Richard calls a person of conscience. Richard, thanks for joining me today. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. I really enjoyed this book. I can't wait to talk about it. I know from your introduction, the idea came from a class that you put together at Wharton and your interactions with students in that class, um, many of whom you call ethics refugees. They were sharing these astonishing stories about incidents that they had experienced in their own jobs. And I know that some of those stories made their way into this book. Can you tell me more about that and what inspired you? Sure. Thank you. Um, I was actually in charge a decade ago of uh, the committee that redesigned the MBA program. Uh, it was a two-year process. And in the, in the course of that, we created uh, a combined course. There had been two separate courses, one on law, one on ethics. We put them together in a new course called Responsibility, which our department teaches. And so I've been teaching uh, a section of that course or several sections ever since. Uh, and each of us gets to put our own uh, kind of signature on it. Uh, and so they're, they really are individualized to the professors. And in the sections that I came to teach, I began picking up on uh, just an astonishing fact, which was that many of the MBA students, certainly not all, but many had um, you know, had their college degree, and they all come from very high-performing uh, backgrounds, uh, gone to some industry, uh, wh- whatever one they thought, you know, their dream job might be, and then had uh, an experience or a set of experiences that were demoralizing to them about the sort of ethical tone or the values of the organizations that they had gotten jobs in. And so part of what was motivating them to restart their careers through an MBA degree was a kind of um, you know, I fell into a swamp. Uh, the MBA uh, program might give me a chance to uh, set a higher ground uh, for the next stage of my career. And I'm looking now for something that's not just an interesting work or well-paid, but also one where my values are going to be resonating uh, in the organization. And so they gifted me and continue to do so. I just taught this course uh, last month um, with examples, stories, um, narratives of some of the difficulties that they had encountered uh, in their first jobs, uh, some of which they managed successfully, some of which uh, they managed and had a fair amount of regret about. Um, But what I then found for myself as a mission in the course was to reinforce, to encourage, and uh, to sort of show the path for how to be a person of conscience. And I deliberately chose that term as opposed to the more um, sort of alarming term, which is whistleblower or, you know, right. anything that su- suggests that you have to be a moral hero or you have to uh, throw yourself over a cliff. Uh, but just to be a person of conscience, to bring your conscience to work, to bring your values to work and make a commitment to acting on them as a sort of part of your everyday way of interacting with others. And that that's an essential leadership skill. What, what's really going on is that people are looking to people like Wharton graduates to step up and to model not just how to do things right, 
but how to do the right thing. And so, uh, so this book comes out of that course. I, you know, some of the stories in the book do reflect my students' experience, but I, I did a very careful job of disguising them all so that their privacy is protected. Um, the, uh, but the, but the actual gist of, of the narratives are, uh, you know, are exactly what uh, I was told. Yeah, some of those stories are, some of them are stunning, some of them are heartbreaking, but, you know, there are people who who might hear that and say, you know what, I don't need a book like this because my moral compass always points true north. I don't need anyone to guide me and where I stand on my values. But, you know, these stories and the, the situations that you explain in the book show us that there are some really sticky situations um, that are not always easy to navigate without either compromising your values or maybe compromising your job, and that we can get through these situations better if we develop this conscience code and become this person of conscious. What is that label and how do we earn that? Sure. I actually think people already are people of conscience, unless they're a psychopath. Uh, <laughs> and this book is definitely not for the psychopaths. Uh, they, they, they wouldn't need it anyway. They wouldn't read it. But what I'm trying to, to help people um, do is break down the barriers between their private life where they think of themselves as a person of conscience, probably in their families or in their spiritual communities. Um, and, and to just you know, bring that along with them on the commute, uh, whether it's a Zoom commute or a, a physical commute, uh, so that they are that person at work and they are integrating uh, their best selves, uh, both and both in all different parts of their lives. I think you earn the respect, the self-respect that comes when you uh, match up to these situations by recognizing that very few people are all good or all bad. And of course, they're good people, and uh, they do honorable things, and they look out for others, and they're compassionate and caring. But the pressures that come on uh, against people at the workplace, their pressures from bosses, peer pressures, uh, the, the, the sort of misaligned incentives that can lock in when deadlines are short or when client expectations are severe, uh, where they their role is such that they feel that they're they don't have the responsibility they don't have the power they don't have the um, the, the the mandate to be the person who steps up uh, or they're in some sort of corrupt system you know uh, racism sexism are systems they're not just organizations or business units they're pervasive and they feel like they're up against one of those uh, and so they just feel discouraged and and sort of step back so I think what happens is good people are put in bad situations or they or they navigate to bad situations without knowing quite how they got there. Mm -hmm. And then they have to make these tough decisions and decide how they're going to respond. And the book actually came out of a conversation in this responsibility in business class uh, where a woman told a story in class about being um, at a client dinner and having uh, the uh, client uh, put their hands on her knee under the table and, you know, sort of start moving his hand up her under her skirt. And she did the usual responsible uh, sort of empowered woman thing. You know, she, she brushed it away. She got up, she went to the restroom. She put some distance and time between these, uh, this man and her. Um, uh, she went and sat down again and he did it again. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so then she actually asked to switch seats with someone for some pretense reason right. and got away from him. But her question was, uh, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to go along with this, 
But I didn't know what to do after that. Right. And so the book is really an answer to her question. Um, yeah, okay, you have the values, uh, but here's the problem. The pressure comes on. This is an important client. You don't know whether you'll be supported. Uh, you may be seen as the problem. Uh, you, you're, uh, you, you, know, you see yourself as a victim, but actually we're going to see you as the source of, of a difficulty. And uh, so now your career is at risk. You lack confidence about what to do. And so, you know, there you are. And, uh, and, and you're alienated from work now. You're depressed a little about what you have to put up with, uh, but you're disempowered. Mm-hmm. And so the book is really a, a way for people to bring that identity, person of conscience, and committed to their values here as the same they would be if they were in a grocery store and they had a child and someone said, uh, leave your child in the in the cereal aisle. I need you over here next to the banking area. You would say, are you crazy? I'm a parent. I'm not going to leave my child here alone. Right. And if you're at work and a boss says, um, just get over it. The client's just a dog. You know, don't worry about it. No, you're a person of conscience. This is a problem. And it's not just a problem for you. It's a problem for the firm. It's a problem for the next victim. Uh, something needs to be addressed uh, about how we're going to manage this. And so you bring that commitment. Uh, and then what happens after that is an iterative process. You know, it's mm-hmm. like any political situation in a firm. You have to take action, observe, adjust, uh, see what happens next, uh, decide to move it along until you feel like you've done your best. Um, but I think when you do that, not only do you uh, stay true to your values, but you also gain tremendous confidence in yourself as a person of conscience. And it's that confidence when you handle little things, apparently little things. I don't really believe there is such a thing as a little thing when it comes to values at work. Mm-hmm. But it means that when the large crisis that's a real obvious crisis at work where the firm is doing something and you think there's potential risk of criminal liability or some significant public scandal or all the different things that can happen, you're well prepared. You've already committed to your values. It's not a question of whether you're going to speak, it's how. And and for that reason, uh, you're going to be given more responsibility. You're going to be seen as a leader. The toughest thing firms face is creating, maintaining speak up ethical cultures. That's very true. When you are seen as a credible champion for that and you put something on the line for it in most workplaces, and you know, there's always exceptions, but in most workplaces, you're going to have a lot of allies. You just have to find them. Well, that brings me to uh, one of my favorite chapters in the book. So this book is organized into 10 chapters, which are really 10 rules to develop your conscience code. We're not going to talk about all of them, but I do want to talk about my favorite one and ask you what yours is. My favorite was rule number six, which um, which was called leverage the power of two. And really, that's about finding an ally in the office who can help you stand up to a problem. Um, and I think that can be very powerful. How do you do that? And can you can you talk a little bit more about what that means, leveraging the power of two? Sure. Um, yeah, it was in, in doing the research for this book and in trying to answer my students' question, what do I do? You know, I know it's wrong. What do I do? Um, I, of course, dove into social psychology and mm-hmm. the classic experiments in um, authority, pressures of authority and social conformity uh, come from uh, Stanley Milgram, who did the famous 
uh, experiments uh, on deference to authority where they you know, had pretend shocks. It's taught in virtually every undergraduate psychology class. Uh, and people, you know, ordinary people actually went along and take orders from these white-coated experimenters uh, delivering what, a, what they thought were lethal shocks to experimental subjects. And everybody in the wake of these experiments went, wow, you know, this is, people are much more malleable than we thought. And actually, he had been motivated to do those experiments by World War II and what mm -hmm. the German people had gone along with when it came to the Holocaust. And it turned out to be much more common than anyone thought that you can be pressured by authority to do a lot of things as long as you sort of put yourself in a subordinate position. But one of the things that I found when I went into those experiments was that he actually created an escape condition in the experiments. He did like 20 different versions of this experiment. And in one of them, he had uh, someone sitting with this subject who was being given these orders to uh, administer shocks. And the person sitting with him was also a, a, a confederate of the experimenter. But this confederate bailed on the experiment uh, at a certain point early on. And the, and, and the person said, you know, this is terrible. I will not uh, lend my name to this. You know, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm not going to associate myself with this. And as soon as that happened, uh, the number of people willing to proceed with the experiment went, you know, way down. So because one, one person modeled one, the ethical behavior, one voice for right. the value, the person had the value, they were just intimidated mm -hmm. and they needed some social support. And the same thing was true for the classic peer pressure experiments of Solomon Ash. He had people lined up and they were saying two lines of different lengths. If, if everybody in the group said they were the same length, then the experimental subject was sort of pushed into agreeing with the group and saying, well, okay, I think they're the same length too, even though they could see with their eyes that they were different lengths. So that sort of peer pressure, one experimental condition, all that was necessary for them to come to speak their actual perceptions was one other member of the group who was another confederate uh, actually spoke the truth and said, no, these are two different size lines. And it didn't matter how big the rest of the group was. As long as there was one ally who spoke the truth, then the person felt that they could speak the truth too. They, they knew that the lines were two different sizes. They just didn't, didn't want to stand out. They didn't want to make an issue of themselves. And uh, so these, this, this notion of the power of two, it's not the power of a thousand, mm -hmm. just two. All you need is to, you know, maybe you end up with a thousand, but start with one. And I think one of the biggest um, patterns I recognize in the stories that my students have shared is that when they've been unsuccessful at managing these in a way they're proud of, it's when they tried to do it alone. Mm -hmm. It's when they felt they're the one who has the problem and they're the only one that they're going to you know, try to go and do something about it. And, and that feeling of isolation and a lack of confidence. And maybe I'm not even right about this. You know, a lot of people in, in organizations who are behaving badly try to gaslight others into thinking there's really nothing going on here. There's, everybody does this. This is not a problem. Well, it's a problem. And if you have one other person who says, yeah, I think it's a problem too. Now, now you've got the starter kit for strategic action. Now, what you do yeah. after that is, is an, another set of thoughtful things to do. But the power of two gives you that, um, that, that confidence to move forward. 
Right. You also point out that even bringing another person on board with you can help you find a solution to the problem that you may not have thought of yourself, just like any sort of collaborative effort in the workplace. Yeah. Two heads are better than one about about what the problem is, what the strategy ought to be, what the relationship network looks like Mm -hmm. that people can access. You know, it just it just, you know, exponentially increases the likelihood of some sort of constructive action. So do you have a, one of the 10 chapters, one of the rules that resonates with you or that you think may be the toughest one for people to, to, to get or to learn? Um, well, I actually, one of my favorite ones I just talked about because I, you know, in the context of doing the research and, and experience, you know, kind of, I kind of knew, you know, every major religion is based on the fact that humans are flawed, that we have, mm-hmm. we have better impulses and we have weaker impulses. And there's a battle every day between which of those impulses you're going to listen to. And, you know, different religions model in different ways, but, you know, it's a constant thing going on. It's not good people and bad people. Right. It's real people who have conflicts. Uh, and the, the, the chapter on the different pressures, which I just went over, was really um, my favorite in the sense of, of sort of exploring those good angels and bad angels in a way that uh, made sense, that was sort of updated to modern psychology. I would say the most difficult part of this process is um, owning the conflict. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can recognize the conflict is there. Uh, and you may be uh, kind of a, a well-positioned to fix it in some way if you choose to do so. But that, that, that ownership problem, it, and that's making it your responsibility to do it. I think that's the most difficult step because it's at that step where you're flooded with rationalizations to do nothing. You know, you see the conflict. Do you own it? Well, you know, it's not my responsibility. Everybody does it. It's only a little thing. Uh, it's just this once. It won't matter. Nobody will notice. Nobody will care. Nobody will actually do anything if I do something. <laughs> and, and so there's just this, 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 you know, just stream of, of reasons coming from your mind involuntarily saying, don't own this. Don't make trouble for yourself. And, uh, and of course, it's when you don't make trouble uh, for yourself that you've just denied your values and you haven't acted on them. And whether you know it or not, you've left a little scar Mm -hmm. uh, that your values aren't worth speaking up for. And the next time it happens, that rationalization, which you listen to the first time becomes even more obvious to follow the next time. And, you know, then it gets harder and harder and harder to draw the line to where action is required. So I think the ownership part, mm-hmm. the, the, the willingness to talk back to your rationalizations, and I think this person of conscience idea that you mentioned at the very beginning is my first best start. Uh, because if you ask yourself, what would a person of conscience do? The answer is usually pretty obvious. A person of conscience would do something. And that's the ownership step. And then all the rationalizations start sounding pretty hollow. And it's what are we going to do, not whether. So I think the ownership part is is really the hardest. And once you take ownership, then the power of two becomes the way to build confidence and intelligence. And then the rest of it begins to, uh, you know, be a set of options. 
you're going to make me invoke the late uh, John Lewis and, and the idea of getting into good trouble. Yeah. And you don't have to look very far in the news to come uh, with examples of your favorite chapter. Uh, right now, the Theranos case is going to trial this summer of uh, 2021. And um, Elizabeth Holmes, who was the CEO there, is uh, you know defending herself. But the people who actually instigated the ethics review in that case, the people who uh, brought down the company, essentially, were just two 23-year-olds. They're fresh out of college. They've worked there less than a year. And like the people in Ash's experiments, they looked at each other and said, do you see what I see? And they both said, yes, we see it. They're faking the results. They're not giving the full information to the regulators. Uh, they tried to elevate it within the firm. Uh, it was actually a corrupt leadership team, so they didn't get anywhere. And then ultimately, they both quit, but became sources for the Wall Street Journal to cover the story. And uh, John Carreyou, who wrote the book Bad Blood, you know, used them as uh, very important sources that just took two people, right. young, young people, but had the courage of their convictions. That Theranos case, I think, is going to be one that's going to be taught in ethics classes for decades to come is so extraordinary. Um, and that makes me think about, you know, one of the best ways to avoid ethical quandaries is to work for a place that doesn't put you in one in the first place. And when I'm thinking about the, the students at Wharton or people who might be re-entering the workplace or looking for a new job after COVID, can you offer some guidance on how you can evaluate the integrity of a business, an organization, or even an individual manager while you're still in the interviewing stage? Is this a place I want to work for? Yeah, that's, that's a, you know, that's a very, very uh, difficult question um, because none of us can read other people uh, perfectly and organizations have branding uh, groups that uh, burnish their ethical credentials, even when it's mostly uh, a facade and not actually what's really going on. So it's tough. I like to tell my students, uh, if you want to stay healthy, swim in clean ponds. Don't go swimming in a dirty pond. Very often, I think uh, firms that are basically run on a results-only basis, you know, they're, they, they may be talking about values, but you see the metrics people are measured on, and it's not process metrics. Uh, it's outcome metrics. Uh, and where you see a heavy reliance on nothing but outcome metrics you're likely to be uh, working in a place where the incentives are going to push people into some pretty perverse places. And then, then you're going to get this compounding pressure on you where the uh, compensation is based on these results. The clients are uh, going to demand the deadlines be met to get to the compensation uh, metric. Then the pressure is all going to flow downhill, peer pressure, authority pressure. Uh, and so you're just going to be on the receiving end of this cascade of moves to either fake the data in the report or not review it very carefully, uh, get it out on time, even though it's incomplete, have all these shortcuts uh, about the analysis that's been done or the benchmarks being used to frame what's going on. And they could be inaccurate or, or, or even made up in order to make the product look good. Um, and now you've got a problem. I, I, I'll give you a, a really interesting story that one of my students told that is an example of someone who came to this a little late, but she probably could have figured this out earlier. So she went to work for a credit card company. And, you know, that's an honorable job. We all need credit cards. We all use them every day to get our uh, stuff bought and groceries paid for. Um, and um, so she was okay in her job until one day uh, she was asked to go to the call center and listen in on the people 
um, who had been tasked with trying to get poor people to raise their credit limits. And they were given scripts to try to essentially manipulate, uh, persuade, pressure people who had limited means to get even further into debt than they were already to the credit card company. Because, of course, we all know the credit card companies make money when you don't pay your bill. And who doesn't pay their bill? People who don't have a lot of money. Uh, and so they they bury them and, and then just feed off of them uh, until they go bankrupt. Uh, and, uh, and bankruptcy is a pretty hard process for a poor person to manage. So she sat there all day and listened on the phones to these scripts and realized what her company was really doing. Mm-hmm. And as soon as she saw how they made the sausage, she couldn't live with herself and she quit. And I think it is, but I think, I think everybody's got their own moral compass and their own lines and their own values. I think if you uh, are willing to spend some time really examining what the profit model is Mm -hmm. and coming to terms with it as something that you are willing to lend yourself to, uh, there's that piece. And then there's the toxic workplace piece. Right. Uh, and I think you can, you can, if you're, again, it takes a little due diligence. You don't just listen to the recruiter and you don't just listen to the people on the one day visit who interview you. You actually talk to some alumni, let's say, of your institution who've been there for three or four years. And the alumni offices are very open to letting you speak to other people. Say, what's it really like? You know, are you are you there for the long term or have you found that this is more a job than a career? Uh, and, you know, get the intelligence from the inside uh, of the front lines. You know, no job is perfect. Right. Every job has problems. But you can tell when when there's a, a business that's trying to instill an ethical business culture and trying to encourage people to speak up when they see things that aren't right. And one that is just pushing that stuff off to the side while they drive to you know whatever the result metrics are and it's it's astonishing how a results culture although they pay very well uh usually uh encourages uh cheating it's a it's a i actually right. have an article title i want to write i haven't written it yet uh but it's going to be called something like how to be sure people behave unethically <laughs> and and it's going to be it's going to be because you have sales metrics and quotas or you have incentives in place. There's a hospital locally that uh, just got uh, covered. They, they were um, incenting their physicians to promote donations from their patients to the hospital's foundation. Uh, now, you're going to see what that will do to the patient-doctor relationship. Suddenly, uh, they were compensating the doctors for successfully recruiting their patients as donors. They were giving them bonuses. Mm. Now, that's, that's a corrupt incentive. Uh, you're no longer looking for who the patients are that need your care. You're looking for the patients who will actually give the money to the firm so that you get a bonus. Uh, and even if you think you're not incented by that, you probably will be. Right. Uh, and uh, so it's, you know, picking up a little things like that, conflicts of interest that are uh, swept under the rug. You begin, you know, you begin to sense maybe this is not the place that I'm going to thrive in in terms of my identity as a person of conscience, uh, knowing that there's no such thing as purity, 
and and also knowing you could be in a big organization and have part of it be a problem and have another part of it be wonderful. That's a, that's some really good advice. Uh, you're talking about looking at the outcomes, how how a company measures its outcomes, and then being being naturally curious, asking not just the ostensible questions but the right questions, the uh, informative questions. And I got to tell you, as a journalist, I agree with that. I I have found over the course of my career that you can learn a lot from what is implicit as much as how, what people explicitly say. So that's yeah. great advice. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you something else too. I mean, you know, there are going to be times when we stand up for what's right, we stand up for our values and we fail, that we don't uh, get the desired outcome. Um, the problem is not addressed. We might get fired. Uh, we might get demoted. We might get marginalized. And what's worse, uh, the problem might get solved later on down the road by someone else. And the person that comes to mind for me is Colin Kaepernick, uh, the NFL quarterback who stood up for his values uh, only to get uh, ousted from his career and then watch that organization change its position, you know, a few years down the road. So is it fair to say that even if you develop a conscience code, that it won't always work? There's no, oh, it'll, no, 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 no. I, 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 I dispute the premise of your question. <laughs> um, the conscience codes works when you stand up for your values, how successful you are, in any given instance, is a function of how effective you are, how skillful you are, how careful you are. And I, I'm I'm not I'm not a believer in uh, let's take a, every value uh, violation and go to the top of the you know Empire State Building and put it on a loudspeaker and start you know screaming at everybody. I I actually think many of these problems can be finessed in a way that that actually the boss or the peer. Uh, isn't thinking very carefully and they haven't thought that there's an ethical way to do this and they are under some pressure. And so they just go with the shortcut and you come up and say, hey, you know what? We can have our cake and eat it too here. Let's not do something that is going to make us feel bad about how we did it. And here's a perfectly good way to do it that will get our goal achieved. And that is, uh, you know, straight up. And, and so you can persuade people to do stuff without accusing them of being bad people or any of that. I think Colin Kaepernick, is a good example of why um, the conscience code is about standing up for your values, not uh, what the result is, mm. because you just mentioned his name. Right. Well, does that tell us something about whether he actually prevailed or not? I think yes. it does. Absolutely. Uh, he was a little early. Uh, he was, you know, his timing wasn't perfect. Uh, and I don't know his, you know, you could argue with some of the symbolism or whatever in terms of sort of getting early and, and and sort of rapid social acceptance, but sometimes you have to break a few eggs if you're going to make an omelet. Uh, and I think you know, I think I think if you ask Colin Kaepernick, did he make the right decision? I think he would say absolutely. Uh, I'd rather have taken that stand and and been an agent of change for the NFL um, than to have kept my mouth shut and. Uh, and and just put up with the racism that I saw going on all around me and not been a person of conscience. The book is titled The Conscience Code, Lead With Your Values, Advance Your Career. And that last part, you know, wait a minute, can you have your cake and eat it too? Is it, you know, I actually think you may compromise the job you're in. You may have a, a bad day at the office when the boss, you know, doesn't give you the plum assignment because you've pointed out that the boss is having uh, some ethical issues that they need to look at in terms of, 
you know, padding expense accounts or, you know, whatever, you, you've been the source of that insight and they resent it. Uh, they corrected their behavior, but they resent it. But I think long-term in your career, you're going to have a much more successful career and people go through 12 different jobs in the, in the uh, average person changes jobs 12 times in their career. Mm-hmm. And you want to be a successful person in a career, you bring your values to work. Uh, you want to be a, uh, somebody who makes you know, a little money or never changes jobs and lives in a toxic environment and is anxious and you know, is in a bad mood at home with their children and all the other things that happen when you uh, hate yourself. Then yeah okay do nothing but I actually think that the career part works if you think of it as something more than just today. Right. It's who do I want to be in my working life? Uh, and uh, I think being a person of conscience and and acting on that identity is uh, very good advice for having a successful long term career. I accept your answer. I think you're right about Colin Kaepernick. So fair enough. I accept your answer. Uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do something I like to call speed round. I'm going to give okay. you three scenarios, um, and I want you to give me some advice based on the things that you write about in your book. So here's the first one. I am employed at a company. I am friends with a freelance uh, contract person at the company, uh, a woman. We go out to dinner one night, and she reveals to me that there's a male manager in the company who is pressuring her to date him. She's not interested. He has sent her text saying, oh, you know, if you want to get hired full time here someday, you should go out with me. And she's a very timid, shy girl and has asked me for her help. And um, and I'm 100% positive that if I stand up for her, that he will, this manager will retaliate against me. What can I do? Okay. So uh, you put me between a rock and a hard place. Yep. Uh, so uh you know, I'm a, I teach negotiation, persuasion, uh, and so I'm a believer in process. Uh, and so I think the, uh, the, the first thing to do is to think about what the process is. So uh, I don't use, I don't talk about this framework in the book, but I do in my class and it's a tractable metaphor. Uh, so the process for engaging this is something I like to call the ODA loop, O-O-D-A loop. Okay. Uh, the first uh, is observe. The second is own. The third is decide, among, you know, decide your options. And the fourth is take action. And then based on the action, you adjust. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's, the ODA loop is actually a term that combat pilots use when they're in tactical engagements in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they do it in very rapid sequences. So uh, apply my ODA loop process uh, to your problem. So first of all, um, you observe that this behavior is going on. You recognize it's a values problem. So you categorize it as something more than just uh, how do we you know, make more widgets? This is a significant uh, ethical issue. And you, job one is support your friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you're going to have a loyalty to your friend that you have to keep in mind throughout this. Um, and of course, job two is uh, you know, protect your, um, your risk uh, to the extent that's possible. Uh, so... Uh, so you, you've observed it, and as a person of conscience, you own it. So this is not a question of doing nothing. This is a question of what to do that could be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, the options, the D part, that decide your options, I would say in an internal context like this, given that you think your boss is uh, a, uh, you know, a, a retributive uh, person, uh, is you have to activate the power of two and go find someone else. 
that you can consult with in the organization. Now, it could be a mentor. It could be uh, someone else in the office that works for the same person. Uh, it could be someone who is in a position like uh, in the HR group that does sexual harassment as their mandate. Uh, but I think, uh, I think you have to find someone else that you can consult with. It could be someone outside the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could have a friend who's a lawyer and you could ask them. You could have a parent who's an experienced executive. Great but idea. you consult with others so that you don't go alone. Uh, and then you craft um, a strategy based on what your uh, sort of loyalties are. You have a loyalty to protect your friend. You have a loyalty to yourself to not uh, throw yourself over a cliff unnecessarily. Uh, uh, and I think you also have a loyalty to the next victim of this manager. Uh, and this is not going to be a unique situation. And you have a text message, which is evidence. Mm-hmm. So you actually have some leverage here. Uh, and um, so I think with the right consulting advice, you might actually be able to, you yourself might not actually play much of a role in this. You would give it to someone who could stage a meeting that this manager would be involved in that would raise the policies of the organization about this and suggest that there's been some discussion about uh, whether this manager is, is observing these things and uh, not do it in a public way where they are cornered, mm-hmm. but do it in a way where, um, where they have a chance to, uh, to explain themselves and also show some remorse if they are inclined to do so, uh, and then hopefully uh, change their behavior you know, at the end of the day, if you're working for someone who would fire you for what amounts to a legally actionable case of a sexual harassment, where there's a quid pro quo uh, being demanded in exchange for employment, uh, this is a walking time bomb that the firm is um, uh, about to be blown up by. And so I think that in the, in the context of, of your advice and the leverage you would have with the text that shows that this is actually what's going on. I think the chances are pretty good that this manager is going to find themselves in some serious trouble. So although you think you're certain that they're going to retaliate, I think if you're more skillful than, uh, than just impulsive, mm-hmm. uh, that it's actually the manager who would end up being terminated. But it, it still depends on the early steps uh, that have to do with consulting. And also if you can find the risk management people uh, who will see this as a, uh, a time bomb. Well, here's okay. So here's one that's not maybe so clear cut. Uh, I work for a company where everybody inflates their expense reports. And the reason they do it is because the company pays way below the standard per diem rate. So people feel justified in doing it. And I don't really feel comfortable lying about how many miles I've driven for the company that week, but I'm getting a lot of pressure to just go along with it. Um, they don't want my report to be the one that stands out as being extraordinarily low. And I'm, I'm kind of thinking, okay, well, you know what? It seems like the fair way to get my reimbursement. What's the big deal? It's a few extra bucks a week. Okay. I get, I mean, I'd say in my class, uh, the most popular problem that uh, they students discuss as having been, uh, you know, beguiled into going along with is expense account uh, abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it helps if you call it expense accounts fraud. 
because <laughs> that actually is what it is. The F um, word. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, when you realize you're lying on uh, on an official form and getting money that uh, the firm uh, knows you're not entitled to, uh, there have been people terminated for this. So it's uh, it's not a trivial thing. It's also, in my mind, a kind of precursor to tax fraud uh, because you're, you're you and only you think you're the only one who's seeing this and no one's ever going to review it and no one's ever going to, but actually people get audited and so do firm expense accounts and mm-hmm. the people who've cheated uh, are the ones who get caught. So so just on a utilitarian basis, uh, thinking that no one's going to notice, which is the rationalization that is uh, now beguiling you, uh, it's a faulty assumption. But go back to my process. So you observe this, is it a value conflict? Yes, it is. The question you put is, should I own it? Everybody does it. I'm undercompensated. Uh, you know, is this something I should own? So I rephrase that question and say, as a person of conscience, should I cheat on my expenses? And as soon as you put the person of conscience in the predicate, you realize the answer is no. Now, it could be a lot of people do, but that doesn't mean you have to. There is absolutely no mandate that says you have to lie if everybody's lying or you have to steal if everybody's stealing. Maybe in high school, everybody's lying about something and you feel like you have to lie. But hopefully by the time you're employed, you've matured a little bit from that step. Uh, now, that, now so, so it's unconditional. You're not going to cheat yourself. But this firm has a problem. Uh, everybody is cheating on their expense accounts mm-hmm. and it's corroding the ethical culture of the group. And so now I take that as the problem I want to own and I want to go through the same process. I want to find an ally because not everybody is doing it and not everybody feels good about it. So I'm going to find someone who feels uncomfortable uh, uh, as I do. Uh, we're going to go to uh, the people that designed the system, either a mentor or someone who can advise us who's higher up to say, you know, the firm has a problem. Uh, y- you may not know about it, but there's pervasive expense account abuse going on. And I wonder if there's some options that people could think about that would be helpful to reduce the incentive for this. Uh, now, uh, maybe it's raise the per diem because expense accounts are billed to clients. It's not, it's not something that is an internal cost that's borne by the firms. It's something that gets exported in their fees. And uh, I've actually had a student who said that one of the three major consulting firms had this problem. And it was an office, uh, you know, one office was uh, in a, a place where the cost of living was lower. And they were sent, being sent to a place where the cost of living was higher for like a two month stint. But the, uh, but the, the expense accounts they were given were from the old place. And so they started compensating themselves in the new place right. uh, because they felt like they didn't have enough money to like pay for their meals or something. Right. Um, it, it, they, the firm, did get audited and uh, and they raised the expense account limits as soon as they found out this was going on because they didn't want their employees to be cheating. That's great. Uh, they just didn't know about it. Right. Uh, and so I think in this context, you might have a system failure in which you can be the advocate for fixing the system. Now, let's assume that, that you're um, a force for good in that department. What's going to happen to your reputation in the firm, up or down? Mm-hmm. Uh, up, I would hope. <laughs> well, they're going to see you as an advocate for someone who is trying to promote an ethical culture and actually fixing an incentive problem. Or that was you as a troublemaker, fear. Richard. Well, if you are, then, you know, that's uh, uh, I can you know, that. <laughs> a dirty pond problem. You know? Right, exactly. 
exactly. Let, let me let me cut you short here just a little bit so we can move on to our third scenario. Sure. I, I feel like this is the modern day scenario. So I'm a manager at my firm. I have a young employee that I manage and he's just great. He's a rising star. I'm so invested in his success. I'm mentoring him. I'm making sure he gets great opportunities. I can see him becoming a manager one day. He recently invited me to connect with him on social media. And now that I'm friends with him on social media, I'm seeing a side of him I never knew before. Um, he's posting these really ugly, vicious things about the transgendered community. And I'm just shocked. But my company doesn't have any sort of policy about your personal social media accounts. They could care less. So there's nothing actionable there. But I don't really know what to do. I'm, I'm invested in this guy. My own reputation is on the line because I'm supporting him. But now I'm concerned about someone like him ever even becoming a manager of other people. Right. Well, that's a tough one. And as you say, very au courant in the sense of, of uh, both social media as well as um, discrimination against uh, communities that are oppressed. And mm -hmm. I think, I guess my, my, when I read this one, I, my first thought was um, a, a chapter I have in the book called Dialogue. Uh, and uh, if you're that invested in the person, they actually have some skill. And, um, and it could be the case that uh, the person is not thoroughly educated on what the issue is and why it's a complex one. And if they trust you, uh, you might ask them for an opportunity for dialogue. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and a good dialogue is not a, I see that you're transphobic or I see that you're uh, you know, an evil person and now I don't like you anymore and I, either you change your ways or I'm going to abandon you. Uh, a dialogue is, uh, I've, I've discovered this, so I observe it's a values problem. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm deciding to own it in the sense that I want to bring it to the person in a uh, reflective way as a, as a, as a mentor and, and see if I can dig under the surface of what their perceptions are and, and inform them a bit about the modern workplace and what the risks are of having this kind of social media behavior uh, as part of their portfolio and their reputation. Uh, now, there are two tracks to take uh, in mentoring someone like this. Uh, if you can do it in a way that is non-threatening, so they're listening. Mm -hmm. One is, this is not good for your career. I don't care what you think. That's your business. But right. it's stupid to be doing this, and you should uh, be careful about it. And until you take care of it, I can't be your champion because it affects my reputation. And I just, I just don't believe in the things you're saying and I can't be associated with you. So, uh, so it's your choice. Now that that's a very consequentialist way of doing it. Since, mm -hmm. you know, bad, bad for you. If you don't want to take my advice, bad for me. And so relationship over. Um, the other way is more of a value-based um, sort of principled way, which is to say, um, you should reflect more carefully on the labels uh, you're giving and the assumptions you're making about people. And I'd be happy to uh, share with you some information about uh, sexuality and choice 
as opposed to genetics and, you know, give you some information that may be surprising to you about um, the way humans and sexuality, you know, express themselves. And, and maybe we can have another conversation. Uh, you know, I, I understand if you don't want to, uh, I just think that uh, I'd, I'd love to, to engage with you on that and see if I can show you why my values are different. So you're, you're actually saying instead of leveraging the power of two, actually leverage your relationship with that person to try to mentor him in a positive direction yeah, um, to affect change. I mean, the, the, the power of two would come in Right. Because the firm doesn't have a social media policy. Correct. And so uh, politically speaking, my side move, my parallel mm-hmm. move would be to say, we have some problems here, bosses. Uh, uh, not having a social media policy leaves us vulnerable. Uh, and here's three cases of firms that have been just ruined by employees uh, abusing social media in ways that embarrass the firm. And most firms will have such a policy. I mean, you know, J.P. Morgan fired one of its highest ranking employees for uh, pulling a knife on a cab driver on a commute home after getting drunk in New York City. Right. Well, it had nothing to do with being a banker, mm-hmm. but they had a morals clause in their, uh, in their employment contract. And so how you behave outside of work is most definitely relevant to the firm's uh, values, reputation, uh, and ethical culture. So, so I think most firms would wake up to this gap and you could help them close it. That would be a third way to go to this employee and say, your social media is a problem. Uh, If you don't change it, you're losing me. Your social media is a problem because it's uninformed. I'd like to talk to you and dialogue with you about the information. And the third is, uh, the firm is changing its social media policy, and uh, <laughs> you either want to get on the bus or get off of it. Uh, this, this may be the situation that creates the social media policy if they exactly, don't. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's and point. it's another risk to the firm. Right. I mean, I've, I've been actually engaged with a lot of people as I've been talking about the book, and it's coming out uh, uh, as we speak. And uh, I've actually noticed an interesting bifurcation in the corporate community that mm-hmm. has to do with this topic. Um, for the most part, the group that is in charge of compliance, ethics, uh, sustainability, uh, ethical culture, they're all interested. You know, they want to know and they want to empower their employees with these tools mm-hmm. and are eager to have them read the book. Um, often in the, uh, a function you might think would have a lot of alliance with this, um, which is human resources, a little more careful about it because they see it as a little bit like, uh, wait a minute, we're going to have more conflict in the office. We're going to have more of these issues uh, exploding and, and I have to deal with them and that's difficult. And maybe I'm not so sure I want to encourage all this. So I think when HR and compliance are in a good team, in a firm, the prospects for an ethical culture go astronomically higher. Uh, but when there's a division of labor there and one side is more uh, sort of just minimizing risk mm-hmm. and the other side is actually trying to maximize ethical culture, then you have conflicts that make it harder to be an employee. Richard, thanks for being with me today. Thank you, Angie. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. It's a great book. It's like sitting down with a trusted mentor. It's called uh, The Conscience Code. Lead with your values, advance your career. It's available now as your favorite bookseller. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find more just like it on our website, where you can also read all our articles on the latest research in business. For Knowledge at Wharton, I'm Angie Bastiani. Thanks for listening. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.